Well, good morning. It is always a uh, pleasure and a privilege to uh, stand in the pulpit of this church. Uh, I, your former senior pastor, Brandon Barrett, was a dear friend of mine as his camper, and I'm just thankful to camp in the session for the privilege of opening the word with you this morning. Uh, if you would like to turn there, uh, we're going to be in the second of the ten uh, words, or as God calls them, or commandments, as we tend to. You could look at that as uh, Exodus 20 is uh, one of the places you will find them. Let me just read the word to you, and then let me pray for us, and we will enter in. Hear the word of the Lord. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them, or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. The word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning I thank you for your word that remains true. It's your gift to your people through the generations as you have superintended it without error and it's original, breathed out by you. We thank you for it. It is our gathered prayer this morning that you might be our teacher. Sweet Spirit of God, open our ears and our hearts, our minds, that we might hear your voice, that you might write your word piercingly upon us teaching us to the things we cling that bring no life, freeing us from their bondage and pointing us to the delighted, freeing, majestic power of you, our God, and the great hope of the gospel declared through your Son. Father, as always, it's my prayer that you would not let my own sinfulness, shortcomings, weaknesses hinder what you would declare. Use me for your glory Declare the power of your presence in your word, through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is an interesting commandment. It's the longest of the commandments. It uh, has a, a lot to say, and so since we've gone, uh, since we're 45 minutes into the worship service, I should be done by noon, so strap yourself in. And I am a Presbyterian pastor without pulpit, so it could take till two. Just bear with me. When I think about things that are embedded in here, when we come to the Ten Commandments, it's often easy to read them, and we, or we read across the Old Testament, which I think the Lord's people do not do enough, and we have this tendency to hear the rules and miss the point entirely. You shouldn't have any other gods. Don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, and we miss the framework entirely of what God is declaring. So I want to start there for a minute with the framework of the giving of the law. We back up just a little bit, just even two verses. We hear what is often referred to as the preamble to the Ten Commandments in verse 1 of chapter 20. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You see, God is reminding us, look, remember who I am. I'm the one who gave you shade by day and fire by night. I am the one who provided miraculously for you. I am the one who rescued you. I am a father to you. I see you as a husband, his wife, as a father, his children. And so as we talk about this, these Ten Commandments flow out of this idea that I love you. 
and I want to be connected to you. Even the language we'll talk about a little bit more thoroughly later of jealousy is not I'm jealous that you do what I want. It's I'm jealous for you because I love you. If you would turn back, don't need to go there, but if you want to do this later today, you could read Deuteronomy 4, which is the unpacking, really, of the backdrop of the Ten Commandments, the heart of which Moses describes, he says, what other nation is so blessed to have their God near them? What other nation has had their God come and rescue them from bondage in yet another nation? What other people has been provided for, been pursued by God the way you have? So when we come to this idea of the commands, it is a framework of a love relationship in which we speak. You can think of a marriage, for example. My wife is with me today. We've been married about 21 and a half years. When Elizabeth and I took our marriage vows all those years ago, I promised to love her, to keep her, most of the time to honor her, sometimes to try to take care of her, to be kind every once in a while. You know, well, these are the implicit vows that husbands make. Am I right, ladies? Well, forget what we said. But as we do that, see, every relationship has obligation. Every relationship has rules to it. Now, sometimes they're more explicit. Sometimes they're more tacit. What we have here with God is an explicit set of rules. God is just saying, look, this is who I am. I am the fire by night, the, by night, the cloud by day. I am your mighty fortress, your strong tower. I am the lover of your soul, the redeemer of your life. I am God, your savior. I alone am the one in whom there is hope. Or we could hear Paul's high Christology of uh, Colossians 1, where he says, Jesus is before all things, and in him it's all held together. Or a few verses before that, that, where he declares, all things have been made by him and for him and through him. Things visible and invisible, rulers or powers or kingdoms or authorities, all things have been made by him and for him. Oh, by the way, this great God loves you. By the way, he's jealous for you. By the way, he is the only God. It's interesting, as I was listening to um, your missionaries, I just reflected briefly on a conversation with a friend the other night uh, as they head off to the Arab Muslim world, and we were talking about idolatry. Uh, a dear friend of ours is uh, attached to SEAL Team 6. He runs a lot of their intel command. And we're talking about a previous assignment that he had when he was in Afghanistan, talking about the abject evil that flows from a, forget God for a minute, just a system of living that's outside the Judeo-Christian tradition. As he talks about the violence, the beheading, and he was very graphic in some of the things that they'd encountered as he was there, and how much we want to just kind of sanitize the language in our culture and ignore that there is real evil, that who or what we worship drives a life. I would argue it this way, men and women, every part of your life is theological. By that I mean every part of your life, your thoughts, your words, your deeds, your affections, expresses what you do or do not believe about God, what you do or do not think about the God who is. You can walk in many parts of the world and hear what they believe, and you can see its outcome. It's a little harder in our culture because we look good, especially in a Presbyterian churches in America, you know, we're generally speaking middle to upper class, we're tidy. Love covers a multitude of sin, money masks a multitude of idolatry. 
and or is itself perhaps at the core of our idolatry. And so we come into these texts, and it's often hard for us to wrap our mind around. What I want to do with you as we walk through this commandment, if you're a note taker, I want to give you four ideas that I'm going to walk through with you. In these two verses, in Exodus chapter 20, verses 6 and 7, you will see these four ideas. There is a command you must follow. There is a reason you must understand. There is a warning you must heed and a promise to which you must cling. Let me say that to you again. There is a command you must follow, a reason you must understand, a warning you must heed, and a promise you must embrace, cling to, follow. So, let me enter in. First, the command you must follow. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above, on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. And there's a parallel idea here is a second command embedded in this second, what we call the second commandment. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. You see, here's the idea. If you make an idol, you will bow down to it and worship it. You see, we can't escape the longing for rescue in our lives. It doesn't matter who we talk to, if it is someone who professes to know Jesus Christ, if it is a Muslim down the street, if it is a Mormon, if it is an a-religious person. Embedded in all of us is this longing for rescue, is what I would articulate. And you can see the propagation of idolatry that follows it. Oh, to be sure, we don't make idols the way many nations do. In a different life, my wife and I served with Campus Crusade for Christ in the Ivy Leagues. I remember a young woman my wife discipled at the University of Pennsylvania. Her name was Megan. <coughs> Megan had a rough first year. Her roommate in roommate lottery moving into the university in the dorm was a, was a girl from India who moved in with the family idols. And literally, there were figurines in her room, and her roommate would sacrifice little bread and thank and water offerings all the day long as she would come and go from her room. That's hard for us to wrap our minds around. We would never do things like that. That's odd, uncommon. And yet, do we not, in fact, reduce God, nonetheless, to a more manageable figure so that we can feel more in control? I would suggest to you that when we practice our idolatries, and I'm going to come back to those in a moment, what we do is we really violate God's freedom. You see, we try to capture God in a way that makes him a little bit safer for us. Or we look for a God that can make life seem more controllable. You see, if I make something into an idol, I am more powerful than it. Now, we don't think of it that way, but it's what we do. Years ago, I was in a 12-step meeting, and I remember sitting there, and the man sitting in front of me said, I never realized how helpful it could be to have a higher power until I made one for myself. Now, everything in me was going, I can't process that one. For, you know, now, some of you may have seen the show NCIS. Anybody watch that show? You know, I wanted to give this man a huge old gib slap on the back of his head, for those of you. But I had to stop myself and realize, oh, dear, am I different? Then we could ask, we could, another thing we do when we create our idols, we violate God's majesty. You see, we reduce his majesty to make him into that more appropriate creature. 
and thereby we reduce the need for our obedience and our reverence, our true love to him, making him subtly more negotiable. You know, the bumper sticker, God is my co-pilot. I hope not. I hope not. I don't fly the universe very well. <laughs> we violate his covenant. The act of making a God, we, by doing that, we, we create some form of this ethical obligation. You see, whatever you think you have to have to be okay, you are going to worship it. And as you, as you center your life around something other than him, you practice an ethical obligation to it. You worship it from the inside out, from your heart out. Moses adds the expression here, don't make it. And make is wor a word is almost explicitly attached to the idea of marriage. It's a covenant word. Don't get in close relationship with. And, and then he says, don't bow down to them. Don't worship them. You see, in, in other words, don't obligate yourself to them. Don't say they are the thing that can save you, that can rescue you from your life. It means to prostrate or to worship. Shahaz is the Hebrew word. It's the idea of kneeling before one greater than yourself to provide homage. When we enter a covenant with God, He alone is the one before whom we are to kneel to say, you are the Lord worthy of my life. Don't make a false covenant. Don't bow down to a false God. Now these are subtle ideas for us, as I said, in the modern age. I, like a, I used to be a Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young fan way back in the day, and some of you may remember Stephen Stills' hit song, Love the One You're With. That is the song of idolatry in our culture. I'm going to love what I'm with. I have a son that, um, who I have no idea where he gets these things, you know. It's probably my wife's geolo geology, there's a good word, genealogy. You know, but, you know, he is very bright and loves technology. And you get in the car with him, and you are going to take a bath in technology conversation. He's got, we gave him a little seven-inch tablet for Christmas, and he signs up for all these tech feeds. And so I get in the car, hey, Dad, you know your tablet is really slow. There's a new one out. It's got a quad-core thing with this retina screen in it, and it'll do this, this. And, you know, I was teasing him the other night. It's like when he starts talking technology, for those of you who have watched the mutant movies, he's like Cyclops. The glasses come down and the light just blasts you, and you're like, <laughs> right? Because it's what he loves. It's fascinating to him, but it begins to dominate him. You see, many of us, if we were honest, just like him, would need to go to a 12-step meeting, Idolaters Anonymous. We could start our 12-step meeting this way. I'd open the meeting, perhaps, because I'm a pastor, which means I'm just more, perhaps, aware of my idols than having less of them, necessarily. Hello, my name is Kron, and I'm an idolater. I have given fill-in-the-blank, believing that it is worthy of my heart and somehow can save me. Camper? All right, and we'll just go around next. Ron, Jack, you know, I, I know a few of the uh, elders named um, Steve, too. Steve's in the front row. We'll have Steve stand up shortly, and he can confess his idols for us. <laughs> Thank you, brother. <laughs> Pay me on that one later. I'll get back to you. You see, let me give you some ideas of ways you and I might practice idolatry. Put your hand up if you are one who has made little figurines and made offerings in your kitchen. Okay, we haven't done that, so we're not idolaters, right? Turn the page, the commandment doesn't apply to me. Well, let's try a few others. 
If you only had a new piece of technology, life would be better for you. If you only had that new Lexus, that new Mercedes, some of you may live a little bit the other end of the financial food chain, and you think, if I only had the $4,000 used car that would not need to be fixed or repaired daily, life would be good and I would be rescued in all ways. Because you see, my life is really hard because I don't have that thing. A little idolatry enters in. We can do it under three easy categories, things that I fear. Oh, well, I'm afraid of being out of control, so I try to manage everyone or everything around me. So your God becomes the need for you to be in control instead of your heart's rest in the one who is sovereign, who is before all things, and in whom all of life is held together. We live in a day where the stock market announcements are like riding the best roller coaster you've ever been on. Click, 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 woo! Click, 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 click. It's what it's like for many of us. And so we have this terror of a lack of money. What will happen to me? And our prayers begin to be, God, provide more money or security. Instead of, God, you are my hope and my security. Some of us are afraid of sickness or failure. Things we fear become often what our lives orbit around. They become the idol of our day. Things I put my trust in, my resources, my reputation, my ability to manage life well, gifts and ability, my reputation and image management. I mean, I can't let people know that I'm actually broken. I appreciated Camper when he was uh, introducing our confession this morning. You see, the gospel frees me to be honest about where I actually am. The law of God serves three functions, if you will. It says how I am to live, it convicts me of sin, and then it points me to my need for Jesus. Hence, we can start our meeting with great delight. My name is Kron, and I'm an idolater. I hate losing control, and I'm really afraid as I have to write my first college tuition check come this fall that I will have no money. Now, some of you may go, well, that's because you won't. But uh, I put... <laughs> But my emotional hope is there, which I can identify by the anxiety that comes to me. Can I get a parental amen to that from anyone? <laughs> so the checkbook becomes what dictates your life, and it is your Lord or your idol. Some of you, and this is harder, I could say, how many of you worship having a good reputation, but you can't put your hand up on that one because you'd have to acknowledge your reputation has a problem, therefore you can't do it. But we know you do. Others of us just look to the things we desire. I drive, we have two primary, actually we have three. Our daughter has a fixer repair daily car. And then my wife and I drive two 04s. Um, hers is in minivans, better off than mine. She's running at about 110,000. I'm up at about 117. And I'm going, hmm, what are we going to do at times? And then, you know, something rattles in the car, and then I turn my TV on, and I'm thinking, yes, that new vehicle with 365 horses in it at 38 miles to the gallon, and I don't think my back and my rear end will hurt, life would be better. You, you see where I'm going there? And the commandment says to us this, God speaking, don't make an idol, and yet the marketing age we live in identifies that you and I are idolaters, and it reaches out saying that, addressing that craving in you for safety and security, for rescue from the turmoil of this present place. And says, if you will only, if you could just have. And then we are sucked in to the life of idolatrous chaos. John Calvin put it this way, the heart of man is a perpetual factory of idols. 
And I, my corollary goes like this, and dang, they all look like me because I keep trying to figure out how to take care of me. You see, over against this movement of our souls, this movement of heart and mind to create something to rescue us, we hear this next piece, the deep reason you need to understand that God is saying this to you, don't do it. His word tells us that He, the Lord God, is a jealous God. A jealous God. Kanah, the central meaning of the word, it usually relates to jealousy in a marriage relationship. It's not the green-eyed jealousy of a 16-year-old who sees somebody that he or she likes and they just become that puppy walking around. Will you look at me? Look at me? Or, you know, in the day we live in, perhaps a little bit of Facebook stalking that goes on. It's not like that. It's a robust jealousy. God knows who he is and he says, I have committed my way to you. I am jealous for your affection to me, for I am your husband. Two primary metaphors of the scriptures, as God relates to us, are, are husband, wife, father, child. We have two children, ages 18 and 15. I don't want them to go next door and obey the parents next door. I want them to be in my house and pick up their things in my house, or cut the grass, or or love me, or watch a film with me. I want them to be attached to me. It is a normative expectation of a love relationship. I want my wife to be connected to me, she, me to her. And yet when we deal with God, all the more so because the one who made heaven and earth is the one who gave his son, is the one who has produced profound rescue, who has sacrificed the greatest sacrifice of all to say, I love you. I love you. You see, love isn't this simple emotion. Some of you may have noticed we have a, a redo of the show Dallas on television. You know, it's, like, you know, it's the adult um, soap opera, I suppose. It's all about jealousy and greed and acting out. You know, and millions of us watch it going, yes, that is life. We're sucked right into the vortex of, of the messaging of these things. And we get the idea that love is just this fickle emotion that swings. But in the scriptures, love is not just a simple emotion. You can look at the last chapter of the Gospel of John, if you would, for, with me verbally for a moment. Jesus has risen, and Peter is called back to his side for his restoration. Peter is well aware of the uh, fragility of his love. In John 13, uh, Peter says to, to Jesus, Lord, I will lay my life down for you. And uh, I've probably said this here before. Jesus always gets Mr. Spock's eyebrow from me as he puts his eyebrow up and he looks at Peter and he rearranges the word order in his response. He, he says, Peter, your life for me, you will lay down? Wow. Betrayal. You see, Peter hasn't figured out who Jesus is and is busy trying to prove he's the good one. I'm not like these other 11 idiots that are following you, Lord. I won't let you down. You see his spiritual idolatry of the moment. And so in the restoration, Jesus asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? And they're using different words in the original language, in the Koine Greek. Jesus is using a form of agape, of an unconditional, unreserved love that's attributed to deity alone. And Peter is saying, I've got the phileo, I've got this warm, brotherly emotion for you. And so Jesus asks him again and again, 
And on the third one, I think Peter cracks and he goes, Lord, you know the poverty, you know my love, you know how I love you. And Jesus looks at him, and I think, and essentially says this by implication, good, now that we're being honest, go feed my sheep. You see, he didn't have an expectation that Peter's love would be somehow flawless. Peter looked at the law and had a standard of expectation that he knew he'd already failed and didn't know what to do with. And the love of God to him comes and says, Peter, I'm committed to you, be honest. And in that honest place, know me. And you will be set free. You see, too often we conceive of our relationship with God as something which is about us rather than somehow fundamentally about the one by whom and for whom we're made, don't we? The belief sets up in us a profound unbelief, a way of structuring our relationship with God as though we're the greater and He the lesser. He exists for me. And my counseling work over the years, one of the most heartbreaking moments I get to is when I will hear sometimes a spouse communicate something like this to me. I know that there are, the Bible tells me I have no reason. But I don't think I can stand on the Bible. I don't love this person anymore. You see, there's the structure of God is if God really loved me, I wouldn't have to have hard things. That's bad theology. It's insane theology. It's like saying, having our children, for those of us who are parents, look at us and say, if you loved me, I, you would fix any turmoil at school, and if I ever said I needed something new, it would magically appear for me. Not that our children don't say that to us. But we identify that that has nothing to do with love as adults. And yet somehow we pivot and we want to look at God and say, if you loved me, this wouldn't be hard. New God. Hebrews 10.31, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews 10.35 and following, don't throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. For in just a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. My righteous one will live by faith. If he shrinks back, I will not be pleased. Deuteronomy 30, 19. This day I call heaven and earth, Moses speaking, as witness against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curses. Choose life that you and your children may live. You see, God, again, is not jealous in the dark sense of the idea. He is jealous for us as a husband, his, ch his wife, a father, his children. When the bonds of marriage are violated, there are always clear and real consequences. We understand adultery as a severing of a one-flesh relationship. Idolatry is a spiritual idolatry. Adultery in the Old Testament was understood as a form of murder. It kills a living thing. So too, men and women, when we practice idolatry, we sever a living thing as we covenant with another, a spiritual adultery. An idol is anything we believe we need apart from Jesus or what Jesus intends to make us happy, satisfied, 
and fulfilled. An idol arises when we desire something more than we desire Jesus, when we fear things rather than God, when we worship ourselves rather than Christ, when we put our trust in anything other than God, when we serve any other thing rather than Jesus. Idolatry happens. So we will begin our meeting again, and I believe if we're honest, we could start together and go person by person. Hello, my name is, and I am an idolater. Because I would prefer to worship a God that I can manage than the God who is. And yet I know deeply that I need the God who is. There's a warning here now for you and me. A jealous God loves you. A warning is given. Sin doesn't happen in secret. There's no such thing as a private sin. A big piece of uh, the counseling ministry that I have, um, I deal with a lot of uh, men dealing, and, and women for that matter too, dealing with sexual brokenness. And pornography, for example, many people think it's a secret thing. Nobody knows I'm doing it. But I will tell you, if that's you, by example, your family knows you're doing it, they may not be able to name it. Because as you worship another thing, you are disengaged from your family, and the fruit of it will always show up somewhere. There's no such thing as secret sin, men and women. And so God speaks to us. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and the fourth generation. When we engage in activities which God forbids, our actions directly indicate what we believe about Him and overflow into our families. You can think of it in a simple way this way. Have you ever looked at one of your kids and you've gone, where did you learn to do that? No, don't answer that, right? Because you know where it came from. You. Remember a year or two ago, my kids were in, the bickering, in a bickering stage as teenagers. And I looked at them, I said, do you guys need help being selfish or does it just kind of come upon you? Where did you learn to bicker like this? Kind of looked at my wife. Don't answer that. Don't answer that right now. It's wrong. Stop it. Right? You see, because we all know even in simple ways like that, sin rolls downhill and there's consequences to it. And there's judgments that follow it as there is destruction in relationship around us. And so sin visits to the third and the fourth generation as we go along. And it, and it doesn't spare, let me speak to the elders in, this, in, in the officers of this church. We're not spared in this in any way, shape, or form. You could look at Leviticus chapter 10 if you're familiar with the story. The high priest Aaron's sons decide they're going to make an adjustment to the worship of God. And so they mix a few bonus things in to produce more colorful fire in his presence. And Almighty says, no way. You were violating me. Worship wasn't about you. It was about me, and he consumes them. See, judgment, I'm not protected by my position. I have two master's degrees from a Reformed seminary, which I think just makes me more dangerous or more at risk, perhaps, for judgment because I can argue I do know a little better than most when it comes to these things. It doesn't change the fact that my name is Kron and I'm an idolater. And I continue to work out my repentance with fear and trembling in my life as my good God continues to redeem, restore, and rescue. You see, in a marriage, when spouses go outside the marriage for love, affection, physical relationship, 
jealousy happens, violation occurs, and everybody around them is broken and damaged, and the sin is visited to the third and the fourth generation. Now, the counter-movement of this, though, there is yet a promise here. It is, put my glasses back on. Of those who hate me is the expression. And that's important. You see, sin will continue to be revisited to those who hate God. But his loving kindness is shown to those who love him. These are not ideas of perfection. God knows better. Have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ as you screw up God's restoring work, regenerative work, redeeming work, growing life change continues for you and in you out of the great love your God has for you. But we need make no mistake, we either know Jesus or we don't know him. You can read in Matthew chapter 12 verse 30, Jesus says, he who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. This is the warning you must know. God knows. Don't play games. He knows. He knows. Revelation 3, 15 and following, God says, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were just one of them. Because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I've acquired wealth. I don't need a thing. You don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you, God speaking, to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich. Isn't that an interesting juxtaposition? My kids asked me, we had Father's Day yesterday. My daughter had a graduation party last Sunday. You know, Daddy, what do you want? I don't really need anything. And it's easy in our culture to complain that we don't have enough while being the wealthiest people on the planet. And we say, I'm rich and I don't need anything. And we encompass in that an unawareness of how profoundly we need Christ at all times. Because I don't want to see my neediness. I don't want to acknowledge it to you. I want to put it together and mask who I really am. And every time you do that or I do that, we miss the great hope of Christ and the gift of life and community with others around us when we hide. You see, as profound as is this curse, however, even more so is the blessing. Let me finish here. Look again at the end. Verse 6, God shows love to a thousand generations. That's hyperbole. It's forever. To those who love me and keep my commandments. The word love here, is, it's hesed. It's God's mercy. It's his loving kindness. It doesn't migrate into English very well. We really need about four words to cover what it means. My loving kindness, my loyal love, my mercy, my faithfulness, my unchanging solidarity and relationship to you will be unbroken. This is who I am, and I declare it to you. The basic notion is God's fidelity to you. Who is the one who loves me? Then writes John but he who keeps my commands. You see, we can't say, Lord, I know your love for me and I love you in return and then I live the way I want to live. Idolatry strikes at the very heart of love for it violates covenant at every turn. 
but over against this is the preaching of the gospel. I do indeed sin all the day long. Our own confessional standards in the Westminster say, I do indeed break thy law in thought, word, and deed all the day long. And the mercy of God exceeds all the day long the failings of your flesh and mine. Amen. In December 1990, an an issue of Life magazine came out, and the issue was entitled, Who is God? Which asked that question of people from all over the world. One of the interviews was with a man named David B. He was identified as the illegitimate son of a French tobacconist who at age 13 began to steal. <coughs> and in, and he w- when he was interviewed, he was in the fourth year of a 21-year sentence for murdering a man during an armed holdup. Here's what he had to say when asked, who is God? He said, I didn't set out to kill him, but I did so, and in cold blood, when it seemed necessary, didn't give it another thought at the time. I thought that I would shrug it off the way I had successfully ignored all my other crimes. But I soon discovered that a man who commits murder sets himself apart from all other human beings for the rest of his life. One day I woke and felt that I had been permanently stained by my act. The feeling grew so intense that I was almost relieved to be caught. The feeling of horror, of disgust, of shame grew. In prison I consulted a priest and he gave me a Bible and as I began to read I was somewhat comforted, or not initially, but by a sense of, of forgive, by a, not initially by a sense of God's forgiveness, but by the conviction simply that he was present. The sense of separation I felt suggested the existence of a being who was offended and who cared. What most impresses me now is the mercy of God, his refusal to be shocked by anything I could do. The God I know is a knowing but forgiving God, He can forgive all the more because he is nobody's fool. Oh, I still feel guilty, but I can feel calm and serene about my guilt. I can face it because I know that I am not alone in the universe. I became convinced, I am convinced that the Bible has a lot more than guilt to teach me, but it is hard. I feel newborn before this religion, defenseless before the intensity of my feelings. I've always been violent. I am hoping that God may help me to have a little self-control, that God may let me learn to be reasonable. Another writes, in 1938 in a Russian prison, 250 miserable men were herded together in a small cell. Among them was a man named David Braun, another David. David became aware of a Greek Orthodox priest in their midst. The old man had been thrown into prison because of his faith. His peaceful, radiant face made him stand out in that awful place like a candle in the dark. You couldn't miss him. It was probably because of this that he became the target for the sarcastic and blasphemous remarks of the two prisoners. They were continually harassing him. They bumped into him. They mistreated him. They mocked everything that was holy to him. But always the priest was gentle and patient. One day David received a food parcel from his wife. And when people are constantly hungry, receiving a food parcel is something that can't be described. It has to be experienced. When David opened the parcel, he looked up and he saw the old priest looking at his bread with longing eyes. Now pay attention. David broke off a piece and he gave it to him. To his amazement, the priest took the bread and he broke it and he gave it to his two tormentors. 
My friend, said David, you are hungry. Why did you not eat the bread yourself? And the priest answers him, let me be, brother. They need it more than I. Soon I will go home to my Lord. Don't be angry with me. Soon after the priest, soon after that, he died. But never again in this cell did David hear mockery and blasphemy. The old priest, the true servant of the Lord, had fulfilled his commission. In a dark cell with no food, he knew what rescue was. It wasn't a bite of bread. It was the love of Christ for him. God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. God rescued a tobacconist. God rescued an aging priest. God rescues you. Let's put down your idols. Know my love. Know me. Only there is their life. You will pursue rescue. Only one rescue is real.